Now, our Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus, for he disarmed all the principalities and powers through the blood of his cross. And with his shedless, sinless blood, you affirm that he purchased us, reminding us of the incredible price that he paid, but also reminding us of your great love for us. And thank you that we have a chance to express initially our love for the Lord Jesus when we are baptized. And so tonight, as we open your word, we pray you'd open our hearts. You've told us to study and show ourselves approved as workmen who are not ashamed, accurately dividing the word of truth. And so we know we're dealing with a critical part of your great commission. And we want to be able to help those who are thinking through this subject and for some of us to think it through as it relates to our own personal obedience. So we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are joining us for the first time, this is topic number three, handout number three in a series of 21 handouts. We won't do it consecutively every week, um, but many weeks we will. Now, as you can see uh, by the initial, after the cover page, there are seven objectives that we have had, and we're asking and answering some of the most important questions on the subject of New Testament baptism. First, we asked, what is the meaning of baptism, and is it a part of the Great Commission? And certainly it is. We saw that the word baptizo means to a dip or to immerse, and Christ commanded it in the Great Commission. So if we are faithful believers, when we introduce people to Christ, we are going to invite them to New Testament baptism. Secondly, we asked, does baptism have any part in salvation? Does it help save a person? No, not at all. doesn't help in the least bit. We looked at a number of illustrations of people who were saved apart from baptism, and that baptism clearly is separated from the plan of salvation to see there on your outline. Uh, Christ uh, tells us through his apostle that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He tells us that the gospel is that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. And in that same epistle, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, clearly separating baptism from the plan of salvation. Roman numeral three on the next page, we looked at what verses do people use to teach that baptism saves. And we looked at the major ones, Acts 2.38, let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. And we saw that the word for did not mean in order to, but because of our forgiveness of sin. Then if you remember, we looked at Mark 16.16, 16. he who is believed and has been baptized shall be saved but he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. He doesn't say he who is disbelieved and not been baptized. Had the Lord Jesus said that, then baptism would be part of the plan of salvation, and he would certainly be contradicting himself in many other passages. But he did not say that. A modern paraphrase, he who is believed and has openly confessed his faith. That person has a genuine item, and in the first century, that confession was made through believers' baptism. We looked at 1 Peter 3.21, where Peter says, baptism now saves you, and he makes it very clear, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. And we looked at it contextually, and it was very clear that it did not mean what some have used it to, to mean. Acts 22.16, we saw that uh, Paul is exhorted to, um, or he says, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And we saw that the phrase wash away your sins is not grammatically connected to arise and be baptized, but rather to calling on the name of the Lord. For the Bible says in Romans that whoever will call on his name 
will be saved. There are two more critical verses uh, that we didn't look at. One we'll look at tonight, Romans 6, 4, that speaks of spirit baptism. In John 3, 5, we didn't look at it in this handout, uh, being born of water and the Spirit. Uh, Again, a favorite verse by those who infuse salvation into baptism, but we examined it in detail in the very first handout. In fact, it was part one of the first handout on eternal security. Then Roman number four, who were the subjects of baptism in the Bible? And we saw that Christ taught believers' baptism in the Great Commission. It's also called credo-baptism. You will hear that term. It's an important term for you to be familiar with. Credo-baptism. Credo is from the Latin, I believe. So succinctly said, I believe baptism, or we usually summarize it by saying believer's baptism. We saw, for example, Roman numeral 4b, only believers were baptized at Pentecost. Philip only baptized new converts in Samaria. The Ethiopian eunuch was required to believe before he was baptized. Paul was baptized after his conversion. Cornelius in his home after they were saved, Lydia in her household, the same. The Philippian jailer, again, after salvation. In fact, every single example in the New Testament without a single exception is only credo or I believe or post-conversion believers' baptism. Then we left off last time, were infants ever baptized in the Bible? We looked at, some argue for infant baptism, also called pedo-baptism, pedo from the Greek word pas, or child, or infant baptism, as it's sometimes used. Pedo-baptism, again, a very important term. You'll see it in commentaries all the time. It's an important word for you to know. It is usually referring to infant baptism, but not exclusively. Some would refer to pedo-baptism if you baptize someone who's eight or nine years old, because as we'll see tonight, they will think they are too young to be baptized, and it's just a more uh, less tempered, I suppose, form of infant baptism. Um, We saw that they argued on the basis of circumcision, that since the first generation of males who were circumcised were adults, and then God commanded the infants on the eighth day, Uh, Usually, again, because they start with the presupposition that the church has replaced Israel, they imply the same on baptism. They won't deny that the first generation was initially believers at Pentecost, but then they say we should follow the example via circumcision. The problem with that is, A, God specifically commanded infants to be circumcised. It was only obviously for boys, whereas He never gave any such command for uh, baptism, and there's no example of it. And add to that, baptism is not just for Jews, it's for an international community of Gentile and Jews, and it's for male and female alike. We also saw that some argue for infant baptism based on the household baptisms. We saw that there are five examples of household baptisms in the New Testament. Um, We looked at many of them. We looked actually at all of them. In four of them, it specifically says in one way, shape, or form that everyone in the house heard and believed. And in the fifth one, where it's not mentioned as such, it is certainly assumed contextually. With that said, to read infants into the text is what we call eisegesis. 
Exegesis is where you read out what God has plainly said. Eisegesis is where you read into the text of Scripture something that God does not specifically say. And that's done all the time, sadly, where people are basically giving their opinion. Now, sometimes we might think, well, this could have happened, and we stated as such as pastors in this church. But if it's not specifically said in the text, we will usually tell you, and it's obvious to the reader. So that's where we are tonight. Point C, biblically, infant baptism is no substitute for believer's baptism. So let's pick up there where we left off. And by the way, someone did ask me if this was a fellowship issue, and I don't address that in this handout, and it certainly is not. Now, take all the air out of the balloon. Someone's right and someone's wrong. Either infant baptism is correct or post-conversion baptism is correct. They both can't be right. Either someone's right, someone's wrong. When you look at those who practice infant baptism, the majority of those who do it today are lost people. They are Christians, quote-unquote, that do not affirm justification by grace alone through faith alone, and so it's more of a ritual baptism. There is a minority of Bible-believing evangelical, and as we've spoken recently, the term evangelical has really become watered down, and I'm not sure what a better term is than evangelical. It's from the Greek word euangelizo, to preach the gospel, to preach the good news. And so we speak of evangelical Christians as Bible-believing Christians. But now, for instance, LifeWay showed that 52% of so-called evangelicals on their most recent survey say that Jesus was created. (laughs) He wasn't created. He is the eternal God with no beginning or end. They said 54% of evangelicals say there's no problem with two people living together who are not married as long as it's consensual. So that's the day that we live in. We live in a day of gross apostasy where everything that was once nailed down is coming unglued. But there are Bible-believing, Christ-loving brothers, usually in the Presbyterian realm, and there are a number of Presbyterian denominations in our own country, in our own world, many that are totally apostate. Uh, The PCUSA, for instance, you can be ordained in the PCUSA, and you don't even have to believe in the deity of Christ. The PCUSA, again, the major Protestant Presbyterian denomination in the United States, also performs homosexual marriage. Obviously, that's a wicked thing. God is displeased. But there are PCA brothers, and they were debating, largely under the leadership of Tim Keller, a so-called Christian apologetic, apologist who said that same-sex attraction is fine as long as you don't act on it, as long as you live celibately. Well, fortunately, the study that he instigated, they came out and they affirmed most recently in the last two months the Nashville statement that affirms marriage between a man and a woman and that same-sex attraction, if it's not brought under the sanctifying power and change of the Holy Spirit, is just as evil is heterosexual lust. So there are some good brothers is what I'm trying to say in the PCA, and there's a few other smaller Presbyterian denominations. And some of our people have left here, and they've gone to towns, and we've tried to help them find a church. And we've checked out all the churches, and sometimes the only church in town that they can attend to 
that believes the Bible is a PCA church. And I'll say that's where you should go. That would be, I wouldn't break fellowship over it. I wouldn't be uh, 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 the kind of person that would create division in the fellowship. And we call it a secondary issue in the sense that it's not a test of salvation. You can believe, obviously, in infant baptism and go to heaven. It's not a test of orthodoxy in the truest sense. But again, someone's right, someone's wrong, and you have to come to your own conclusion what is the Scripture plainly say. And as I've traveled to many countries in the world to preach the gospel, people sometimes scratch their head and they'll say, Pastor Carl, these are folks who've never been to seminary. And there's a certain purity in that. They haven't been educated into some of these positions that are not plainly brought out in the Scripture. Some positions you have to be educated into. You have to be educated into a limited redemption, that Jesus didn't die for all, but only for the elect. No one reading the Scripture at face value would ever come to that opinion. But with that said, they will ask me, where do people get this infant baptism? We just do not see it. And I say, I don't see it either. But again, it's not a test of fellowship. So biblically, infant baptism is no substitute for believer's baptism. In the Bible, we find parents bringing their children to Jesus where He held them, prayed for them, and commanded us to welcome them. Yet He never baptized them, nor did He command anyone else to baptize them. Secondly, baptism is for those who have made a personal decision to trust Christ alone for their salvation. And so Cornelius's house did not have to become Jewish proselytes or be baptized before being born again. And we looked at that last week. They're hearing the message, they believe in their hearts, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. How do we know? Because God gave an outward manifestation. They spoke in tongues. Not like we're seeing today, which is no different than Kendalini Hinduism, where people are slain in the spirit, speak in tongues, laugh uncontrollably, bark like dogs. That's, that's Hinduism. That's not Christianity. But with that said, um, Cornelius spoke in real languages. How do I know? Because Peter said, what happened to them is exactly what happened to us on the day of Pentecost. And it was good of God to give that outward manifestation because it was a definitive, you know, pound the stake into the ground evidence that Gentiles were on the same ground as Jews. As noted earlier, if baptism is necessary for salvation for either an infant or for an adult, then they would, then why would Paul have said, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius? If Paul says, I thank God I didn't baptize anyone, it's part of the plan of salvation, that would be a really ignorant statement, wouldn't it? And if baptism is necessary for salvation for either an infant or for an adult, then why would Paul say, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void? So again, he's separating the two. Now, I won't go into it in this handout, but... Uh, there are people like John Calvin and Martin Luther who took a sacramental view of baptism. They taught that there was an infusion of grace that took place at the moment of baptism. Uh, their argument basically is that because man is dead in his sin and can't respond on his own, then he needs what's called prevenient grace, or we call it pre-salvation grace. And that through the parents, uh, bringing their children for infant baptism, God gave this infusion of grace that would put them at a position 
to maybe later believe in Christ. Um, with that said, huge inference. They're coming out of Roman Catholicism. They're coming out of a sacramental system. They're putting a different spin on it than Roman Catholics do, but they don't take the position of the Anabaptists and many Protestant reformers that it was simply an ordinance and not a sacrament. So when you are in a church and they use the word sacrament versus the word ordinance, it says volumes to you. They are saying that this rite be at the Lord's table or baptism or in some churches where they have other ordinances, that there is something miraculously that happens that's infused. And obviously, I, I don't believe that, and I don't think the Scripture teaches that. While some take infant baptism as salvific, even those who take it as a covenant between the parents and God are still infusing into baptism a meaning that cannot clearly be exegeted from the Bible. I remember dealing with one of my PCA friends, we worked together in a campus ministry, and we'd get into a lot of debates, and, and he took the covenant approach that his two parents brought him to his Presbyterian church and made a covenant with God. I said, well, let me ask you a question. You've told me that your two parents were not believers, so what kind of a covenant can an unbeliever make with the living God? So what significance does your infant baptism have? That was an interesting discussion. Anyway, if you were baptized as a child and it was the intent of your parents that you would one day be a follower of Jesus, and that, again, in good faith and in fairness to those who ascribe to this position, that's where they're typically coming from, a covenant approach. They're bringing their child to God, and they're asking God to bring this child to faith then you might view your post-conversion baptism as a fulfillment of your parents' wishes. So if you were baptized before you found the Lord, you may have been dedicated to the Lord, but you were not truly biblically baptized. By the way, there's only one case of quote-unquote child dedication in Scripture, and it's Samuel, and he's being dedicated by Hannah, and not just to know the Lord, but to be a priest of God. So it's a very unique uh, setting. That's not to say that we shouldn't give our children to the Lord because they're not ours or a gift from Him. We are stewards of our children, and we should live for them that they might find Christ. But if anything, if we're going to do it, when I first came here, there were baby dedications. And I said, I'm just uncomfortable with it. I said, I can't do that as the pastor. And they accepted that. Uh, it was part of the candidate process. I'm not going to do baby dedications. Because to me, it's confusing. It, it, if anybody needs to be dedicated, it's not the children. It's the parents. The parents who walk with God, who bring the children up in the discipline and nurture of the Lord, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he'll not depart from that way. In other words, he's not saying they'll go and sow their oats and later on they'll come back and believe in Jesus again. The verse doesn't say that. It says just the opposite. When they come of age, they won't walk away from the faith. They'll continue to walk with the living God. In either case, you know, sometimes this is a problem for people. And I say, well, you know, Look at the positive side of it. Your parents, if they were Bible-believing Christians and they performed infant baptism on you, you know, their, their intent was good, that they wanted you to know the Lord. So don't disparage that and, 
in the be careful how you address them respectfully. However, ultimately, you need to be baptized not to please or displease your parents, but to obey and please Jesus Christ. So I've had people tell me, I will not be baptized because this would be a heartbreak to my parents. They're not the ones you're supposed to be pleasing. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. All right, Roman numeral six. What was the form or mode of baptism in the Bible? Again, biblical baptism is never by sprinkling or pouring, but by immersion. The primary meaning, you know what I mean by the primary meaning. You, the, the same applies in an English uh, dictionary as it does, say, in a Greek lexicon. There's a primary meaning, a secondary meaning, or a tertiary meaning of some words. Some words only have one meaning in every context. But in English, you know, words can take on a different nuance depending on how they are used. And there are some Greek words, some Hebrew words that carry that same thing. But the primary meaning of the word baptizo means to immerse. The primary meaning of the word baptize in every Greek lexicon is simply to immerse, to plunge, to, to put into, or to submerge. Even the figurative or metaphorical uses of the word in Koine Greek carry the idea of immersion as someone is immersed in cares or plunged in grief. And we do the same thing in English, right? Baptism by sprinkling or by pouring is an oxymoron. That is, it is something that is self-contradictory because baptism by its inherent definition must be an act of immersion in water. In other words, the word literally means to immerse. So to take a little baby and sprinkle them and call it baptism, it's just a, it's an oxymoron. It, it, it's a contradiction of the very nature and meaning of the word. There are specific words for sprinkling around tizo used in Hebrews. I gave you some text and pouring balo, but these words are never, ever, ever used for the rite of baptism. By the way, there are some in the Orthodox Church. By Orthodox, I don't mean Orthodox in terms of the um, the correctness of their belief, but you know, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Moldavian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox. There are certain sections within the Orthodox Church when they baptize an infant, because that's what they practice, they do it by immersion, where they'll take the baby, and I've seen it, and they really just plunge it right under, and the baby <gasps> kind of gasps. And, um, and sometimes they'll do it three times, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. And I was teaching this handout 35, 30 years ago, I guess. Yeah, it was my first year here at Community Bible Church. And there was a gentleman in our church, and he says his cousin died from that baptism. That's exactly how he was baptized. And the child ingested water, and as a result, got an infection in their lungs and died. But, it, but lay that aside, that's the only case I've ever heard of anyone ever dying. But still, when you take water and sprinkle or even pour, and you call that baptism, you're redefining a word that has no such meaning anywhere in Koine or in classical Greek. So immersion best pictures the significance of the Holy Spirit's baptism, which is death to the old life and resurrection to the new. Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are do we continue in sin so that grace may increase? 
He just said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Well, if that's true, maybe we should sin up so we'll get more grace. And he says, may it never be. May ganointa. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Contextually, he's talking about spirit baptism. Water baptism cannot put you in Christ. Only spirit baptism can. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So we're immersed into Christ. The second, a secondary major meaning of the word baptizo means to identify. So he speaks about those in 1 Corinthians 10, for instance, who are baptized into Moses. What does that mean? They're identified with the leader named Moses. And we are identified with Christ through spirit baptism. So every time you see the word baptism, don't always think water in the New Testament. For we have all been baptized by one spirit, Paul says. So many times it's in reference to the Holy Spirit's work and obviously not water. The action of being immersed in the water illustrates being buried with Jesus. And the action of coming out of the water pictures his resurrection. That's why we as pastors will often quote this verse when we perform believer's baptism. Because spirit baptism symbolizes the reality of water baptism. Or spirit baptism actually actualizes what, I should say, what water baptism symbolizes. The symbol of death, burial, and resurrection can only be clearly taught and explained by immersion, a symbol that breaks down if you pour or sprinkle someone. While we are never told to immerse a person backward in the water, for centuries Christians have done it this way because when you are buried, you are laid on your back, and when you are brought back up to the upright position, you are representing the resurrection. So that, by the way, is how most pastors baptize people, not just in America but across the world. They put them on their back, so to speak, and they bring them up. Though in one country of the world that I was in, they did it like this. All right, so... And I actually baptized an 88-year-old lady that way because she grew up Methodist. I was privileged to lead her son and daughter-in-law to Christ, and they changed so much. They were in their 50s, and then uh, I had the privilege to uh, go to a hospital room when uh, this man's uh, daddy was sick. And he had grown up in a Methodist church here in town his entire life, never heard the plan of salvation. And he received Christ. He died a week later. I did his funeral. And that funeral spurred this older woman's curiosity. And I sat down and shared the plan of salvation with her. But she kind of walked like this. Literally, she had osteoporosis. And, and the safest way to baptize her was just vertically. But in case you're wondering, there's a reason why most people baptize in that direction. B, all the examples in the New Testament argue for immersion. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, we're told in Mark 1.10 that the Lord came up out of the water. Jesus illustrates for us their proper way of being baptized, and so he demolishes the human tradition traditions that change the mode of baptism. Let me read it to you. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? 
But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit descending as a dove and lighting on him. Jesus' baptism, which is recorded, by the way, in all four Gospels, clearly shows that one would need to twist the text to conclude that he came up from the sprinkling of water. Because in these references, clearly he's being immersed. Obviously, if John the Baptist was baptizing by either sprinkling or by pouring, then there would be no need to go down into the Jordan River. Uh, we studied this last week. We saw Philip the evangelist. Remember, he was in Samaria, great revival. And then God called him from a great revival to reach one person. Because while God is interested in the masses, he's interested in individuals. And while Christ died for all, the Bible also affirms he died for each one. And so if you remember, he was using the prophet Isaiah that the eunuch was reading, and someone asked me, are you going to teach on Isaiah? You said it was an important passage. I hope to. In fact, last February, I started uh, in my quiet time studying Isaiah, and I thought I'd be there for a couple of weeks. I'm still in it. I have 256 pages of typed notes uh, as I've been working through Isaiah, just the 53rd chapter. That's all I've been doing, just Isaiah 53. And I'm almost at the end of it, but I still have four more verses to go. It actually starts at the end of 52, the flow of the text. But here's the point. When Philip the evangelist baptized the believing eunuch, we are told that he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he then noticed baptized him. If sprinkling or pouring were the mode by which God would have us to baptize, then he would have went to the edge of the water, splashed him, or maybe got a cup and poured him. But he went down into the water, and after they went down into the water, he baptized them. Because again, that's what the word means, to immerse. We saw that one usage of the word was a fuller's term in the first century of someone who died clothing for a living. So a white shirt turned blue would be baptized, immersed, into the respective dye. So if sprinkling or pouring was in view in Christ or the eunuch's baptisms, then there would be no need for either John and Jesus or Philip and the eunuch to both enter into the water together. They would not have had to gone down into the water, but simply to the water's edge and then used a cup to pour or to sprinkle. Uh, there's one church... A Willow Creek, I'll just tell you. I mean, they've gone haywire. The pastor who the church followed vehemently for three decades, you know, came out as a fought, fraud and a fake and a multiple adulterer for three decades. And very, very sad. But, you know, they give you whatever option you want. You want to be sprinkled? Get sprinkled. You want to be baptized by a cup of water? We'll baptize. You want to be immersed? We'll do it however you want. Look, you know, it's humbling sometimes to go under the water, and a woman's got a $70 hairdo, and it's all messed up by the time she's done. It's a humbling thing to go under the water, but it was humbling when Christ died on a cross and was buried and was raised from the dead. 
So we humble ourselves before the Lord and we take this first step. In fact, we learn that when John the Baptist performed his baptism of repentance, we're told in John 3.23 of why he chose this area. John was baptizing in Anan near Salem because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. No need for much water if you're just sprinkling or pouring. Again, had he sprinkled or poured, there would be no need for plenty of water, for much water is only necessary when immersion is practiced. Immersion could have been used in every recorded case of baptism found in the New Testament. For even apart from the oasis found on the desert road to Gaza, in Jerusalem where there were sufficient mikvah baths to, conver- to immerse the 3,000 converts, in, on the day of Pentecost. And I gave you some pictures of the mikvahs that were actually there physically when Pentecost took place and Peter preached on the southern steps. And right at the bottom, they have found 48. There were supposedly over 100, but they've uncovered 48 mikvahs that are very similar, actually bigger than the baptismal tub we have back here. Even non-immersionists, such as Calvin, I have Calvin's Institutes, and if you look at volume 4, 1519, he affirms that the initial way in which the church baptized was by immersion. Luther, in his commentary in Galatians 3, affirms the same, as does John Wesley in his commentary in Romans 6, 4. All acknowledge that immersion was the universal practice of the early church. Okay, let's ask some commonly asked questions about baptism. Everybody still with me? We're doing okay? All right, good. What is baptism for the dead? Um, What is baptism for the dead? Well, the question concerning baptism for the dead arises from 1 Corinthians 15, 29, when the Apostle Paul said, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Now, if you know 1 Corinthians 15, it is the great resurrection chapter in the New Testament. It's the most explicit explanation of the resurrection and its significance in all the New Testament. I preached a sermon one Easter, and I did the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. It's a rich, rich chapter of Scripture. And of course, he gives these various arguments for the resurrection, and then he makes a statement right in the midst of this argument, why do people get baptized for the dead? Now, in the second century, historians record that there were some heretical groups that practiced what we call vicarious baptisms, but the church at large never accepted their practice. Vicarious means in the place of. You know, sometimes we have vicarious sermon listeners, right? They're not listening from themselves. They'll come up to you as a pastor. I wish my brother was here today to hear that message. And I'm thinking sometimes, well, what did God say to you? He said something to me. I hope he said something to you. And uh, vicarious sermon listeners who are always listening for someone else, never for themselves. Well, there were vicarious baptisms, In the second century, we find one record of one historian who records it, where they were being baptized for someone else. Turn the page. This verse has more recently been misapplied by Mormons, who claim that Paul supports their view of proxy baptism for dead people. In this practice, individuals go to their local Mormon temple, dress appropriately for a baptism, representatively adopt the name of a person who's died, and then are baptized for that deceased person. 
have you ever wondered why Mormons have the single best genealogical records and research in the world? Here's the reason. Because they go back and are often baptized. Sometimes a single person can be baptized for hundreds of relatives. So if you're doing your genealogical research, get it out of Utah. It's some of the best stuff in the world. In either case, by this proxy baptism, the living Mormon has fulfilled for the dead person salvation if they died without knowing Jesus' teaching that supposedly were entrusted to Joseph Smith when they were alive. So they're being baptized for some relative who didn't embrace Mormonism, and they're doing proxy baptism. Letting Scripture interpret Scripture, the Bible is clear that our destiny is settled the moment we die then no one can make a decision for someone else, right? Hebrews 9.27 is that appointed for a man to die once and after that the judgment. It's not like, well, you died and you're in Hades and, and your cousin who's alive on earth did proxy baptism for you and so now you can be, you know, removed out of Hades and, well, that's probably not a good example for Mormons because they deny eternal retribution anyway. But lay that aside, you can have a part in their so-called coming kingdom. Maybe you'll have your own planet. I mean, they teach these kinds of things. I mean, it is so bizarre. Um, it's so fanciful and I don't know. I'm not, I'm not being critical, but look, this. well, I am being critical. And I need to be critical because this is heresy. And Joseph Smith has led, helped to lead thousands of people not into the kingdom of God, but directly into hell. And of course, Jesus said, when a man dies, there's a fixed gulf between him and the Lord, just like Lazarus could not cross over from Abraham's bosom to where the rich man was in Hades. There was a fixed state forever and ever and ever. And the man in the parable, you know, said, well, I got five brothers, you know, if, if someone will just go and, you know, come up from the dead and they'll repent and believe. And Jesus said, if they won't believe the scripture, they won't believe a miracle. And it was a short time later, he literally physically actually raised the man who was named Lazarus from the dead, who'd been dead for four days, and they then concocted a plan to murder him. People say, well, if I just had a miracle, I would believe. That's a lie. It's not true. Now, they may think it's true, but it's really not true. It's one of Satan's lies to them. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And if a man won't listen to Torah, Moses, Jesus said, neither would he listen if someone were raised from the dead. Jesus plainly said, he who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. Seven, his argument in addressing our resurrection in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, is that if there is no future resurrection, then why bother to reach sinners who are then baptized to take the place of those who have died? Paul is speaking of the certainty of the good news we preach as seen in the resurrection. And so he says, those who are baptized for, and it's the Greek word huper, meaning in the place of. Those who are baptized for or in the place of the dead refers to those baptized to take the place of those who have died. In other words, Sally dies. She was a servant in the church, no longer working on the 
wall of Nehemiah, so to speak, and we need someone else to take up the slack that Sally had, and you keep preaching the gospel, and God raises up another worker to carry on the work of the kingdom. Simply put, the Apostle Paul is reasoning that the Christian life is only a dead-end street then why would you would be wise to get off of it? That's what he says. He said, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything we're saying is a bunch of baloney. Our preaching is in vain. And he's using this illustration just as a reminder. This is why we keep reaching people and they are baptized in the place of those who've already gone on because it's all true. Okay, another question. At what age should children be baptized? Since the New Testament contains no clear example of a child receiving baptism or of a child being refused baptism, just doesn't give the age, each local church must seek God's wisdom on this ordinance. Baptism requires a level of both cognitive and developmental readiness. So if a child cannot answer basic questions about the meaning of salvation and baptism, it is better to wait than to prematurely baptize. So this is an important issue. Understanding the gospel precedes conversion in the New Testament. So sometimes parents are well-meaning and they get their children to pray a prayer, but they don't really understand what they're doing. Now, they may be taking a step towards God. They may be responding to everything they know to do. But understanding precedes conversion. You don't have to be a great theologian. A child can get it, Jesus taught. But with that said, we want to make sure they've got it. And so a parent brought in some of their children, and they prayed the sinner's prayer, and we want you to baptize them. And I said, well, I've got to speak with them first. And, and I asked them the same questions they asked, just a different way, and they gave the wrong answers. And then Dad jumped in and started correcting the child. Now, you know that's not... I said, Dad, you've got to let him speak for himself. And sometimes I'll say to parents when they come in, please don't answer any of the questions for the kids. Just let them speak for themselves. Our goal is not to get them baptized. Our goal is to make sure they understand and prayerfully believe the gospel. So while we must be careful never to communicate to children that they are too young to understand the gospel or to respond to Jesus, for he said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Remember the apostles on that day? They were kind of, you know, get these kids out of here. And Jesus gave them a strong rebuke. And one aspect of Christlikeness is the love for children. And if you meet some Christian who doesn't like children, you're meeting a Christian who is not very Christlike. At the same time, we need to be sure that since understanding precedes genuine salvation, Romans 4, 1 to 5, good example, as best we can humanly assess, we want to make sure that their conversion is real. We want to make sure it's real, right? Even if it is not a pastor's practice to baptize children, and I have a friend, I think I told you last week, he pastors a church in Washington, D.C., and they won't baptize anyone until they're 18. Now, that's his position. But all I would say, if there's pastors listening, I have a number that follow and are involved with us. Even if it is not a pastor's practice to baptize children, he should always be thrilled 
when a child expresses a desire to be baptized because it is a wonderful opportunity to speak to that child about their soul and encourage them to continue to seek the Lord. And, you know, when kids come in, because I don't want them to be disappointed, and many times they're loaded for bear, and they think, you know, dad or mom or both are bringing me to this appointment. By the time it's over, Pastor Carl is going to set up a, a baptismal appointment. And one of the first things I tell the kids is, I said, now you got to understand, Joey, or whoever. Sometimes, you know, I'll meet with people two or three times before I'll baptize them. So I don't want you to be discouraged if you leave today and, and I'm not quite ready to baptize you yet. And again, I deal, as do the pastors in this church, with people who are baptized prematurely as children with pastors who never even check them out. I had one couple just two years ago, their military couple moved here. Dad and mom had just been baptized, and the 13-year-old had been baptized, and they moved here and couldn't come to meet the pastor, so they did an office appointment. And, and I said, well, let me ask some questions. And, and as I spoke to the daughter, it was obvious she didn't even know what the plan of salvation was. But some pastor up there in North Carolina baptized her. Now, fortunately, the parents had grasped the meaning of the gospel. But look, a person can be eight years old, they can be 60 years old and not understand the gospel. And sometimes when people come down front and said, I prayed the sinner's prayer, I made a decision with you this morning, many times all they've done is taken a step towards God because they still need to hear the plan of salvation. So in an effort, six, to prevent young children from making a premature commitment that they may not fully understand as a pastor, I like a period of time between the child's decision and their baptism. So I had a family in recently, and the parents had thought this um, one child was saved, and it was obvious that the child was not. I, I don't ask children usually the zero to 100 question. I'll say, you know, Freddie, if you were to die right now, are you not sure you go to heaven? Are you pretty sure you go to heaven or are you real sure? Not sure, pretty sure, real sure. He said, pretty sure. What do you think you'd have to do to be real sure? I'd have to be baptized. So it was obvious to the dad and mom that this child had not yet received Christ. So I went through the plan of salvation. The child prayed the sinner's prayer and, and the parents assumed I was going to then immediately baptize them. And I said, no, I'd like to see your child again in eight months to a year. Based on the age of the child, you know, a lot happens between seven and eight and eight and nine and nine and 10. I mean, think about what you were like when you were 18 and what you were like when you were 25. There's a lot of development that takes place. Well, I said to the parents, I said, look, you coached your children to give certain answers when you ask certain questions. And you should do that. You want to coach them with truth. But I asked the same questions a different way, and they gave the wrong answers. So now I've spent 40 minutes, quote, unquote, coaching them, and maybe now they're just giving me the right answers. So I said, let's bring them back in 8 to 12 months, and we'll see where they're at and see if they're ready, because if it's theirs, I can ask the question 10 different ways, and they'll be able to respond properly. So I baptize very few seven- or eight-year-old children, and typically only if they have been believers for several years and demonstrate exceptional cognitive and spiritual development. 
Now, kids are different. They're all different. It doesn't mean that a child who, you know, can grasp and dialogue with an adult at seven is necessarily some genius than a nine-year-old who can't. They just develop differently. It's like walking. Some kids walk at nine months and some walk at 18 months. Sooner or later, they get it. And so you have to be, I think, you know, sensitive to that. I, I tell some people, I probably waited too long with my oldest two. They were very young, four or five when they received Christ. And I remember them witnessing at seven and eight, and they could articulate the plan of salvation. And, and when we moved into this church, we built the building next door, and a baptismal would have cost us about $100,000, and I didn't want to spend that money. I felt like we needed square footage for classroom and nursery space. And I said, we'll, ju- we'll just do it in another place until we can build our own baptismal. Anyway, they were over in that building, and they cornered me one day. And Jeremy was 11, and Jordan was, he's 21 months younger. Jordan was, Jeremy was almost 12, and, and they said, Dad, when are you going to baptize us? We've been wanting to be baptized for several years now. We feel like we're disobeying God. I said, okay, I guess it's ready for you, time for you to be baptized. But I would rather baptize later than sooner. Because I want that child, when they look back, if they are eight or nine years old, with a sense of confidence, I knew Christ as my Savior. Because constantly I get adults who come in. My pastor baptized me when I was 10, and I don't know if I understood the gospel. And that shouldn't happen typically. It can, but it shouldn't typically. Okay, why in some churches is baptism withheld until the candidate reaches a certain level of spiritual growth and maturity? Some churches wait until the new believer grows to a certain level of maturity in order to prove his salvation, and so one's baptism is withheld after one's conversion, sometimes for several years. However, all the examples in the New Testament indicate that believers were baptized right after they believed. For example, 3,000 believers were baptized at Pentecost probably within an hour or so after their conversion. The eunuch was baptized the same day he believed. We studied that in Acts 8. And Saul of Tarsus, three days after he came to faith. In addition, Lydia and her house were baptized the same day they came to faith, Acts 16. And also in the same chapter, Acts 16.33 notes that the Philippian jailer and his family were baptized the very night they believed. He didn't even say, well, we'll wait until the morning. They did it the same night. Clearly from such passages, the argument can be made that baptism was not withheld until someone reached a certain level of maturity because baptism in the believers is the believer's initial confession of faith in Christ. While there is not a command for what we would call immediate baptism, and while caution needs to be exercised in days of apostasy and persecution, there seems to be a clear emphasis on one's confession and baptism. So, for instance, in the former Soviet satellites, like when we went to the Ukraine, they never baptized anyone before the age of 18. And their rationale was, is they didn't want some young teenager to go rogue on them. And then when someone was an adult and they received Christ, they would often wait one or two years. Why? Because the KGB would plant within the church, quote-unquote, fake believers 
they would get on the inside channel, and then they would report what was really going on in the church, and pastors would be arrested, and Bible studies would be broken up. And my first year in Ukraine, the KGB was still active, and they sent someone into a church in Venezia who was not a Christian, faked conversion, did a baptism, got on the inside, wrote, and his whole purpose was to seduce one of the pastor's wives to bring shame on the church. So in some of the places where persecution has been prevalent, they've withheld baptism because they want to make sure that the conversion is real. And in days of apostasy, too, or days where... You know, people don't even know what baptism is about. It's unlike the first century. They have no idea what baptism even means anymore. There's a need for maybe greater instruction. So in light of the examples in Acts, did I skip one? Yeah, let me read seven again. While there is not a command for immediate baptism, I read it, and while caution needs to be exercised in days of apostasy and persecution, there seems to be a clear emphasis on one's confession in baptism. In light of the examples in Acts, the fear of potentially baptizing an unbelieving believer, a church would do well to keep space of, a space of time uh, between the person's confession and baptism as short as possible. So, you know, there's, there are pastors, and I get this, because... Largely, it's been fueled by decision Christianity, where guys are just going after decisions, and they never even follow up on the decisions to see if the person has understood and truly embraced Christ. And so in a lot of churches, you just walk the aisle, and you're an adult, you say, I want to be baptized and join the church. Great, we'll do it next week. And no one ever speaks with them and talks with them and finds out if they really know Jesus is their Lord. With that said, um, understand there was an unbelieving believer, right, who got baptized. We studied it last week. Do you remember? Acts 8, Simon the sorcerer. So he had them buffaloed, and they baptized him only to find out that he's still in the gall of iniquity and the bitterness of deceit that he really wasn't converted. So every pastor, sooner or later, is going to baptize an unbeliever. It's just going to happen. The parable of the soils. And in, the, in, in, in one soil where they, they believe, they receive the word with joy, and they believe for a while. So there's an emotional dimension Believe here, but not here. Every time you see the word believe, it's not always of willful belief. The demons believe and tremble, but sometimes of just intellectual belief. And time shows how they weren't really a believer, but you could only go by what they said. So in addition, some churches do not allow a person to partake the Lord's table until after baptism. This and other factors further add to the importance of baptizing a child in a timely manner. So if... For instance, my friend's church, you cannot participate in the Lord's table until you've been baptized. You're going to ask someone to wait until they're 18 to participate in the Lord's Supper? That's a big decision. I would, I would be uncomfortable with that. Now, I'm very uncomfortable, again, with baptizing people prematurely. And churches take one of two positions on the Lord's Supper. Some require baptism before the Lord's Supper. We don't. I see it as a fantastic teaching tool. 
that when you're working with your children and they want to participate in the Lord's Supper, I say, well, you know, um, not yet. You have to receive Christ as your Savior. And it, and it fosters questions. And again, that's the purpose of symbols. You know, what's that guy doing up there getting all wet, Dad? What do these 12 stones stacked in the river mean? And again, God had a, a purpose in the symbols. So I don't have a problem with doing the Lord's Supper, but I always tell parents, if you're convinced the child is a genuine believer, okay. But baptism is another error. But again, in some churches, you cannot become a member until you're baptized, much less participate in the Lord's Supper. And that's a long time. And again, I think sometimes it's driven on a pastor's own experience. I won't go there. Let me go to point D. What if I was baptized by immersion before I became a Christian? Or when I look back on my baptism, I am not certain that I was a genuine born-again believer. Should I be rebaptized? Well, there's only one clear example of people being rebaptized or baptized twice, and it's about 12 men from Ephesus who were baptized by John the Baptist when they were in Israel, but were rebaptized by Paul after they believed the Christian message. We studied that a few weeks back, three weeks ago. John's baptism was a call to repentance and preparation for the Messiah, but not a personal profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Their baptism was not a true profession of faith in the Messiah, since they had not even heard about the Lord Jesus, as Acts 19, 3 and 5 indicates. While this is a unique issue related to John's baptism, something we don't have today, it still gives us a helpful example for counseling those who are baptized as unbelieving infants, adolescents, or adults before they came to faith. The principle drawn from Acts 19 is that if the baptism was not biblical in its character, then the individual should be rebaptized. In addition, some people have been baptized as a part of a cult group or other non-Christian group. I have not truly had Christian baptism. I had a lady years ago, and she told me that she was born again listening to my broadcast on WAGP while she was attending the Mormon church. And so she asked if she could be baptized over there. And they baptized her. And she kept listening to the messages, and she finally left the Mormon church. So when she came to join here, she said, well, I've, I was already baptized after I was saved. I said, but you were baptized in a cult. And it's really not the nature of true Christian baptism. So I asked her to be baptized again. Even if they were born again at the time the baptism was done, it is still not a biblical baptism since baptism has its meaning in the context of the local assembly of believers. Clearly, if you found Christ as your personal Savior, and you made a public profession of your faith and the assembly of the saints by being baptized, then you never again need to be rebaptized. Um, the biblical example is to put your baptism on the right side of your salvation as an emblem of what Christ has done for you. If you are uncertain whether your baptism followed your conversion, then err on the side of obedience and do it again. It's a question I'm often asked. I don't really know if I was a Christian pastor. I'll say, well, you know, very often the reason you're here today and there's such consternation in your heart is because you're bothered by this. So why don't you just, you know, have, make sure you've had believer's baptism. Again, it has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with obedience. And I said, the worst thing that can happen is you get to heaven, and, and God says, you know, you really were a believer when you were 15, and that pastor baptized you. 
but I'm glad you wanted to err on the side of obedience. Or more likely, you'll get to heaven and say, no, the first time you were baptized, you weren't a believer, and that's why there's such turmoil in your heart, and I'm glad you did what was right. F, should I be baptized if I am physically handicapped or if I'm afraid of being immersed under the water? Well, two extremes are taken in answering this question on baptism. Some will say baptism is of little importance, concluding that one should not worry about it. And still others who falsely require baptism for salvation end up motivating the above cases out of fear rather than out of love. So, um, uh, and I've dealt with this. And, you know, we have some people, we, we have two lifts. You can't, you, some of you, how many of you ever been back there in the baptismal? All right, so some of you have seen the lift. It goes up on the, those are my dad's lifts in his house. He spent $10,000 in those lifts. And I asked my mom when he died, could I have those? And we eventually put them up on either side, even have another chair as a replacement back there. And so people who are troubled being able to walk, we've got a little elevator over here. They come in on flat ground, go up the elevator, brings them up to this level, and then up the lift up to there. And um, we've had strong men Duncan O'Quinn helped me one day. I said, Duncan, I need your help. And he carried this person and walked him down into the baptismal so I could baptize him. And we do it in a careful way. Usually on those days, uh, the window is down. The person is in place. The window goes up and we'll only do that one baptism. I I baptized a lady who was paralyzed from the waist down. This is when we had to do it out in the river and we didn't have our own baptism. And it was a young Marine family. He was a Marine captain and his wife. And uh, it was a beautiful testimony because uh, uh, they were engaged to be married and she was in a car accident and was paralyzed. And he married her anyway. I thought, that's the kind of love I like. You know, non-negotiable. I love you no matter what. Anyway, uh, it was my privilege to baptize both of them, and uh, I said, look, we'll, we'll get another wheelchair. No, I, she wanted to do it on her wheelchair. I said, it's salt water. I don't care. I want it down in my wheelchair. So I had a couple of guys help me, and we wheeled her down that ramp, that boat ramp over there at the Naval Hospital, and I baptized her. And after I baptized her, the little cushion that she sat on started floating down the river, and her husband jumped in with all his might, and he swam, got that cushion. And Now, I had another gentleman here in this building. I think it was our first year here. And I had shared the gospel with him five years earlier, and he just wasn't interested. And uh, then he got cancer, and it was terminal. And he came into my office and said, I, I want to talk to you about becoming a Christian. He said, I don't have long to live. And he listened, and he received Christ. Now, he had a tube that went through his neck. Bottom line is, if I baptized him, he died a month later. I might have cut his uh, last month short. You know, water would have gotten down there. And I said, look, it's, it's okay. Now, some would say, oh, that's when you pour. I'd rather not confuse the symbol. I just didn't baptize him. But that wasn't an issue for him because he understood that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone. So biblically, I believe that every Christian should seek to be baptized even with a physical limitation, if it is safe for them to do so. If they're 
able to obey by being baptized even with a handicap, their motivation should only be out of their love for Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If one is not physically able to be baptized, one might like this, uh, understand this, like one who is financially broken, unable to give. If you have no increase, you can't give. God doesn't say, why didn't you give a tithe? Well, I'm, I'm unemployed. Now, sometimes people give out of their poverty, but you can't give if you have no increase. So that might be a parallel example. I was trying to think of another one, but that was the only one I came up with. However, in most cases, even those who are physically handicapped can be baptized by taking some extraordinary measures using a mechanical device or being carried by a couple of people. On more than one occasion, we've had individuals in our baptistry in place and ready to be baptized with the window down, and then after their baptism, the window is immediately lowered. In regard to those who are afraid of the water, I've discovered that this is often the case because they do not know how to swim, and the thought of being placed under the water is sometimes terrifying. I've baptized dozens of people with this fear, and I've learned as a pastor that walking a person through the process ahead of time and reminding them of God's care will get them through. Uh, sometimes it's children. Sometimes an adult will come in, and they'll say, I'm just terrified. And I will physically, ever before the baptism, come up here during the appointment, and I'll show them the baptism, and what will actually go down. And, and um, I have always remind them, nine, that God will never ask them to do something that he does not give them the strength to accomplish. Right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I also remind them I've never lost a single person in baptism. <laughs> no one's ever drowned up there or in the river, so don't worry. Um, what if I was baptized in another denomination as a believer by immersion and my new church does not accept it? Some churches will not accept your baptism, even if it was done after conversion by immersion, if it was done in a different denomination. This is referred to as, quote-unquote, alien baptism, practiced by some independent Baptists and very rarely in a handful of Southern Baptist churches. Alien, of course, means foreign, strange, or not native to its original design, and when this is applied to baptism, it, it views such baptisms in another denomination as defective. Uh, such thinking is very rigid and not found in Scripture, and I suggest that one prays long and hard before joining such a fellowship. Some churches like this are driven by a very narrow view of the body of Christ. They're typically called landmark Baptists. They argue that they are Baptists from John the Baptist. And so unless you've been baptized in a landmark Baptist church, your baptism is not valid because it's an impure denomination. Some independent Baptists fall into this, and in Arkansas, some Southern Baptists fall in this. In fact, there was a time in the 80s where virtually the whole state of Arkansas for the SBC uh, would not acknowledge what's called alien baptism. If you're baptized in another denomination, they didn't accept it. That's changed, but there are still some churches like that. And I think sometimes uh, it's a motivation to drive up the number of baptisms. I mean, it's sad. It's just the reality of it. They used to publish books. Now it's online. And so not every denomination does this. So they're looking for a pastor. Hmm. Let's see how many pastor. Let's see how many baptisms Brogy had. Oh, you know, yeah, that many. Oh, we need to go hear him. And so sometimes it would inflate numbers and people were baptized who shouldn't. We, we, we don't do that stuff here. We don't have any motivation to do it. And, but it's sad when it's done. 
our church will receive anyone biblically baptized after they were saved by another Bible-believing church. I don't care if it was Wesleyan Methodist. By the way, they baptize by conversion, typically, not infant baptism. If you're baptized by immersion after conversion, we receive that. So conclusion and summary, we've discovered from our Bible study that a biblical baptism is one that involves the right person, namely a consenting believer in Jesus Christ, at the right time after a person has trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, for the right reasons, symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And here's your memory verses here, these three verses from Matthew 28, 18 to 20, if you're memorizing along the way. I told you, Ed, I was going to finish the handout no matter what. So I'm just going to close us in prayer, and let's bow our heads and hearts. Our Father, we thank you for the commission that you've given us, that as we go, we are to share the gospel and to seek to make disciples You've called us to encourage them to the obedience of the ordinance of baptism and then to train them in the whole counsel of your scripture. So help us to be faithful disciples in that respect. And we pray for some who are listening uh, who need to make that decision to obey Christ in baptism and to take that step. Uh, Help us as a church to encourage them by explaining what the Scripture says and what it does not say. We thank you tonight that we can come to a throne of grace to find help. We want to first thank you for what you are doing at CBC Grace, how more and more folks are coming each week. And we pray that you continue to grow that campus and the Graniteville campus. And in your providence that you would, if it pleases you, reopen a Hilton Head campus. So we commit these needs to you, but we want to especially lift up this rare but real woman's event coming up in just a week from Friday. We ask you, our Father, to anoint these three young ladies who are coming, that all the women, young and old alike, would be greatly encouraged. And I pray, Father, that the women at large would use it not only to encourage the saints, but even to reach out to those who have never met you in a saving way. So give them wisdom as to who they can invite and who they cannot. And finally, we ask for the Frontline's ministry as uh, Pastor Drew leads them and opens the Word of God each week and addresses critical issues that so many youth across our nation are dealing with, that you would uh, firm these young men and women up in the truth of Holy Scripture that they might stand strong and even be able to help other people. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.